As you can hear, my voice is not 100%, so I will not be quite as loud this morning. Some of you are like, yay, but um, we will do the best we can. So this morning, um, we, our text is found in Acts chapter 5. If you can please turn there, that's been page 1081 in your uh, Red Pew Bibles. We are in the midst on the back end of our sermon series. We've been calling people together with God. And we're actually going to be looking at the, the uh, I guess you can say the topic, even though it's, yeah, I guess topic is a suitable word. It's a broad topic, but the conversation of lying, right? I'm not looking at some kind of moral do and don't. You know, I grew up in the Bible Belt where there's a ton of do's and don't kind of sermons, and, you know, I never knew quite why I shouldn't do things or should do certain things. I just know that I shouldn't, right? This is not going to be that kind of sermon. Okay, we're going to do a deep dive into the gospel this morning, looking at Jesus and looking at our own sinful inclinations that we all share in when it comes to this topic of just honesty as a church community, honesty as people. Um, to start off with a story, um, Dog, this is some years ago, uh, this, this is a real story, I didn't make this up. Dog owner Petty, Peggy Ranger dropped off her six-year-old uh, Shih Tzu at a Montreal dog's, uh, it was a kennel, right? It's a very popular local dog kennel in her area in Montreal. She just needed a few hours to place the dog away as she was out and about. Um, Soon after she drops the dog off, she gets a phone call, says, we lost your dog. So ran away. And so Peggy is part of her family, right, this little dog. So she hires, you know, she starts calling people. She hires a search committee after a week or so who actually can search out lost dogs. And the search committee goes to this kennel and says, hey, we need to look at your surveillance records and blah, 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 blah for the dog. And they said, okay. So here's what really happened. There was two really big dogs, and they mauled your dog. That's the truth, because the video cameras would have shown it, right? Um, They told her this, the lie, that she ran away, because obviously they wanted to preserve business. They didn't want to have that reputation of, bring us your dogs so they can get mauled, right? Like, that's not the best reputation for a dog kennel, right? But as the story, you know, the news report ended, they, the, the owners said, yeah, in retrospect, it probably would have been best just to tell the truth, right? When lying occurs, like in that story, there is a massive breach in relationship. This story is only about a consumer and a business, right? Um, but I'm quite positive uh, Peggy never brought any of her future dogs back to that kennel, Right? But what happens in, say, a church or a family when someone lies? What happens between God and his people when someone lies? In this sermon series, People Together with God, we're going to be talking about the need for truth-telling as a people devoted to Jesus together. And how if we do truly live as a truth-telling family to one another, not only will we experience a, a deeper closeness with God, freedom in that life and transparency with him, but also with one another. We will be shining as a light in a nation that is looking 
for a trustworthy people. I mean, right now, I don't know if you, we'll get into that later, but what a great opportunity to shine the light of Christ in our society and communities, to be an institution here that is honest and trustworthy, right? We're getting to that here in a little bit. And we'll see how the incarnation of Christ, or when Jesus took on flesh and became a human being, we're gonna see how that is the model for how to live as a trustworthy people together with God. We need to be deeply formed people, friends, like deeply formed, letting the Spirit of God deep into us and so the roots of our own hearts are just immersed and dipped in the river of grace that comes from our Lord. So we're gonna be going to be looking at um, lying today from three different angles, really. Be looking at lying with an, with an intent to deceive others for personal gain. Be looking at lying with intent to embellish your own story. Often, sometimes those come together, right? And then we're going to round out our time today with creating a culture of truth telling within this church in a world that desperately needs it. So let me um, let me pray before we dive into our time today. Um, Lord, we attend church not as just consumers to have itches scratched for us so we can walk away feeling full. Lord, we want to be formed. I mean, we want to be formed into the likeness of Christ. We want to be ministered to by you so then we can be filled to go and minister to others, Lord. This is a gathering of people who have been redeemed by you, Lord, who know the truths of the gospel, and we celebrate your resurrection this morning, recognizing this is the morning that you burst out of that grave, Lord, and you summon us every week together to set on our eyes on you, Lord. We are hungry for your glory. We are hungry for you, we are hungry that you would just fill, fill our hunger with you, Lord, that we may not stuff it with junk from this world that is empty calories that can do nothing for our nourishment, for our souls, Lord. We need you. Holy Spirit, would you come into this room this morning, Lord? Would you minister to us? Would you keep our ears open to listen to you, Lord? You are active. Your word is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, would you allow our hearts to be soft so that if throughout our time together in our sermon, if there is any seeds that the Spirit needs to plant in our hearts, that our hearts can be soft and ready to receive, that that seed may grow and just blossom, Lord. Would you remove any walls or barriers that may keep us from hearing this morning? Would you turn our eyes upon you and away from ourselves, Lord? Meet us this morning, Jesus. Thank you for our time of worship that you did already have met us. Lord, continue to meet us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So why do we lie? Generally speaking, as we said, there's, there's two reasons why patterns of lying can surface in our life. It is either that you're intentionally trying to deceive, like you're mapping it out, you're planning it out, and you want to do so for personal gain. Or you want to provide a false or misleading impression on someone for the benefit of your own image or your own 
reputation. The first reason, intentionally trying to deceive, it begins super early in the biblical story, um, like page two, right? The Garden of Eden. We see that the very seeds of the curse and fall of this world is wrapped up in lying, right? When Satan tempted Eve in Genesis 3 concerning that tree of knowledge of good and evil, God, God said of that tree, if you eat of it, you're going to die. And the serpent was like, really? Like, are you really going to die, Adam and Eve? And um, Eve was like, yeah, 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 God said we would. And the serpent says in Genesis 3 verse 5, he says, you surely will not die. It's just a bold-faced, flat-out lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, my voice is going to crack and be like a teenager here eventually. So if it happens, you are free to make fun of me for as long as you want. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I always like to think the best of people. Perhaps is a fault of mine sometimes. But I like to think that this is one of the least common ways found among us when it comes to lying, that we literally lie in order that we may get something out of it. Satan was trying to pull God's image bearers away from God and into his own domain, right? I would like to think that we don't often do that. I think we, often, we, we have at some point in our lives, of course, right? I like to think that's not like that high-handed sin, that repetitive pattern that we have to map out and how, you know, exactly to do that. But if you look in the Hebrew scriptures, right, whenever lying is mentioned, it is always coupled, to, almost always coupled together with other kinds of sins in referring to other people. In Isaiah, when lying is mentioned, it is almost always linked to oppression of others. That part of oppressing others includes Lying. Ezekiel in chapter 13 mentions people lying in order to increase their own food supply. Injustice, oppression, selfish gain in the Old Testament. These are all things that are almost always matched together when lying is surfaced in the prophets. All of these things, they break community between people and God. One person lying to gain while the other suffers because of it. Now, I would like to think, right, there's a lot of evidence that shows this. This often happens when there is a, when there is a lack of personal relationship, especially when we refer to institutions, right? The, the lying of an institution. Sure, sometimes people intentionally deceive mother or father, brother, that happens, but we know that corporations and institutions are especially famous for this, you know, lying about their products or services to larger groups of people whom they don't really personally know well. I remember years ago when I first saw that sign at McDonald's about their chicken sandwiches and it said, now with 100% real chicken. And I'm like, what was the chicken sandwich I ate last week? It's like, hold up, wait a minute. And why was it called a chicken sandwich if now it has chicken? So that wasn't a chicken. There's a lot of problems with that statement, right? Other fast food chains, right? If they had honest marketing, it would be something like hamburgers, only 50% beef and 50% other. 
We don't quite know, but it's, it tastes like beef, though. It tastes just like a hamburger. Like, that would be the honest marketing, right? But of course, we don't see these fast food chains do that. We could give endless examples of corporations lying to squeeze money out of our pockets. But, you know, this isn't just some small issue or just some problem with McDonald's, right? There's a problem with this in our society as a whole, and it's deeply affecting us. In an article for The Atlantic, author David Brooks write about the idea of cycles, of the cycles of a society every 60 or so years having what he calls a moral convulsion. That phrase comes from a late Harvard political scientist um, who said that around every 60 or so years in our country, we have what, we, what he calls a moral convulsion. And it has a shared common feature. People feel disgusted by the state of society. Trust in institutions plummet. Moral indignation is widespread. Contempt for established power is intense. We've seen this about four different times. And it's always included, you know, things like political violence, assassinations of U.S. presidents, right? Unrest amongst our country. Um, we definitely are not seeing that today, right? This has affected our church, or just capital C, like the church Catholic. This has affected the national church. I was just with a bunch of pastors this past week in North Jersey. Some pastors told me my church lost 50% of people during the pandemic. One pastor said 75% of their church vanished after quarantine, after the pandemic. And I asked why, right? And it was always over, well, our mass mandate wasn't firm enough or it was too loose, right? Or we didn't preach about vaccinations or we preached too much. We included, we talked too much about vaccinations. Like you couldn't make anybody happy. And at the end of the day, people simply didn't have trust in their church, right? This stuff has affected us. People have lost trust in institutions, and whether you like it or not, the church has always been an institution of sorts with centralized leadership, institutional structure, the need for money, and so forth. Read the book of Acts. All of that is there really early on. The nest, nevertheless, though, institutions are made up of people. The church is made up of, the church is people. It's not made up of people. It's people. Like, it's not the building, right? It's you. It's the people. Therefore, when it comes to this conversation of lying and honesty and trust, we need to first look at our own personal formation, what we bring to this church community. How do we create and maintain a culture here in our local expression of the global church of Christ? How do we create a culture of truth and honesty towards one another? Could you imagine just imagine me for a moment, the, the witness that would be in the nation that has lost all trust in institutions to have the church be this beacon of light, of honesty, transparency, and truth. It would be like a glass of cold water in this heat wave that we're experiencing, right? It's like, really? Like this still exists? And friends, we have Jesus Christ and the gospel that gives us an undergirding for living this out, right? And we'll talk about this as we move on. Just recently, I met somebody who 20 years ago was burned by the church. I mean, it was a crazy story. They have not stepped foot in church again. 
and it's devastating. They've lost all trust in the church, lost all respect for the church. And it's actually understandable after you hear their story, right? God has always desired amongst his people to have a culture of honesty and trust among themselves because he himself is truth. We are his image bearers. Numbers 23 is clear about who God is, about his, his character. God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23, 19. He is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, a human being, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Knowing part of his redemption plan is to restore us to be formed as he is, to be deeply formed as his image bearers. And when people were in front of somebody, there's a mirror, right? And they're seeing the very character of God within us and its power and its light and its glory, not in my name, but in God's name shining through me, right? That's the kind of the idea of Pentecost was to pour out the spirit in mass on all people who believe in order that 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 might be spread out over all people in this whole world when they interact with a Christian, that they are seeing a walking mirror of a glimpse of Jesus Christ. My voice did just crack. Did you hear that? So I'm going to read this to you in Acts chapter 4, right? Some of the scriptures here of the early church before we get into Acts chapter 5. This is just a paragraph right before, beginning of verse 32. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. Think about that. All believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We read this and we're like, that's really impressive, right? Like, Lord, like, could we have glimpses of that here, right? Of one heart and soul shared all things in common, right? And the apostles were, were filled with power as they gave witness and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. People selling land they didn't need, giving all the money away to each other for those in need so that there was no need among them, right? Now, to have that kind of commonality amongst the people, the word trust isn't here, but of course we know to share all things in common requires trust. It requires a built trust, knowing if you had a need, it was okay to say, I have a need, and not be judged by stating that need. And others would freely say, I have excess here, you have a need there, we'll take it here. There shouldn't be a need among us, Right? Acts 2.47 actually says that due to this kind of living amongst them, that the spirit-filled ministry happening like that amongst them, that their numbers increased, that people saw this and said, I, I want some of that. Because whatever's happening here isn't happening out there in Rome. 
I want some of that. I'm going to be a part of that family. Why are you guys doing this? Let me tell you about the one who was raised from the dead. But as Luke wrote the book of Acts here, he, he, he's, he wants to show us how in these early, quote unquote, you know, flourishing and successes as a church, as a really experiencing this, together Satan was close at hand. There's a famous story that follows right after this of lying and deceit that we're going to look at. Now we know this story's true, right? Because this is a black eye in the early church. Right? When, you, when somebody asks for your story, you don't often want to tell them the bad parts, right? It's easy to kind of like just gloss over those and, and tell just the good parts. Luke could have done that, but he chose not to. He wanted to tell us one of the black eyes of the early church here, one of the failures, and we're going to read about that here as we continue forward. Satan was close at hand to disrupt what the Spirit of God was doing amongst this early church, the testimony that was being given, and he wanted to bring about his corrupting ways into the very core of the church. Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, we'll read this. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. At first glance, you read this, you might think, well, what's, what's the big deal? But in, there's a Greek word used for kept back, and it's a contractual kind of word that's more likened to like misappropriating, right? In other words, there's really strong indications that Ananias and Sapphira probably had a handshake that said, hey, we're going to give you all of this money from these fields. We're going to shake on it or something, right? I don't know if they shook hands back then, but that's kind of the idea, right? They verbally, they, they made an agreement to do it, and they simply didn't. Now, how does somebody get to that point? You're probably instantly thinking of a time that you did that, right? Because let's be honest, we've all done something like this before, right? How do you get to that point of just straight up lying, and breaking trust with that person. I can't prove it here in this story exactly. I can kind of draw it out a little bit, right? Luke never tells us exactly why this couple lied, but however, we can assume that they probably wanted two things that they couldn't actually have at the same time. Two things they couldn't have at the same time. We just got finished reading about Barnabas, right? There's a lot of stories about Barnabas in the New Testament that follows this chapter. He was like one of the, one of the superstars of the other church, a, a, a strong laborer, a gifted person who had mass influence amongst people that God used for great things. It was him who sold his property and kind of gave it to the church. Ananias and Sapphira saw that and was probably like, man, wouldn't it be cool to be like known like that, right? For people to kind of see us in that kind of same light. Right? There's a reason why Luke couples these stories back to back, right? They probably want to appear before the church as those who are as generous as people like Barnabas. 
Maybe they genuinely wanted this to some degree. Maybe there's tension, we don't know. But number two, they weren't quite ready to do it, right? They weren't quite ready to actually, they sold it. I mean, give them props for that. That's something. That takes a lot of steps just to get to sell that property, but they weren't quite ready to give all of that money away. I don't know if you ever, you know, were gifted a bunch of money or, you know, had some kind of bonus from work or something and it comes time to, you know, tithe or, or an opportunity to be generous and you're like, you're like, we're ready to do it and you see the money and you're like, oh, this is like, this is decent amount of money. I'm really going to like give some of that away, right? Is that only me? Does that happen, right? Maybe that happened to them, right? I don't know. But they wanted the appearance of godliness but weren't quite willing to do the work of godliness. What do we call that? Hypocrisy, right? Wanting to appear a certain way, but not quite willing to do it, right? In 1980, there's a, it's kind of a funny story, it's sad, but this is a little extreme, but anybody ever heard the story of Rosie Ruiz in the Boston Marathon, 1980? In the female category for the Boston Marathon, she, she runs across the finish line and, and wins in an astonishingly fast pace, just a little over two hours. Nobody had ever heard of her, right? Like she was an unknown person and everybody was just a little confused about that. You don't just show up to the Boston Marathon without any kind of running career and just win, right? This is a, a world famous event. The best of the best of the best run, right? And they already have like established careers or reputations and running before they get there. It's impossible to compete without having spent many years training and getting ready for that, right? But here's this unknown woman who just smokes everybody, gets the crown, everyone celebrates. Some people are like, I, I mean, I saw her at the back end, I don't remember seeing her at the front. Like, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I miss her, but I don't know. So eight days later, the truth comes out. The last mile of the race, she was like on the sidelines. She was like, oh, and jumped in. And of course, the last mile of the race, she sprints, right? Smokes everybody and wins. She was, of course, stripped of her crown. Her story was found out, right? It's kind of a crazy story. But that's not just lying, right? It's a great definition of hypocrisy. Looking like you won, looking like you're the best of the best in the race. You have the crown looking, receiving the credit for it without having actually done the work. That's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They tried to do that. They wanted to be seen as having done the sacrificial work that godliness drives us to do, but they didn't actually do it. That's satanic, actually. Like, I want that to kind of sink in. Who did Peter, you know, contribute the influence of that to? Satan. Like, it's not just like a small thing when we do this, friends. It's satanic. Like, it's evil when we do this. We're going to break down why that is the case here in a moment. But let's see what happens in our story right? When he says, you know, Satan filled your heart to lie, et cetera, and so forth. You lied to God, right? In verse five, it says, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. (laughs) It's a little crazy, right? The guy just drops dead. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. 
Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him away. God, in his infinite knowledge and sovereignty, knew that judgment needed to come in front of the church so they would see how much he cares about the purity of his church, about the holiness of his people, about the witness of the church to the broader community, right? And he showed them. But the story didn't quite end there. In verse 7, three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? She had an opportunity to tell the truth, but she says, yes. She said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. There was a conspiracy in the true definition of it, right? On the sidelines between this guy and his wife agreeing to test the Lord, to see if they could get away with this before God, right? But she died just like her husband. What may not seem like a big deal to them turned out to be a really big deal to God. That's the, sin is not a popular topic today to talk about, but the weight of sin in this passage is immense. This is a gravity of sin that we're reading about, friends. Verse 11 tells us that the whole church heard about this and saw, and they all were in fear. Like, I think I would be freaked out too if that happened in my church service, right? Now, obviously, God does not always provide such judgment. In the early church, you can read the New Testament letters. There's lots of people who were repeating similar sins but not dropping dead, right? We know that God, in his infinite knowledge, chooses to do certain things sometimes and not others for his purposes, and we entrust his infinite knowledge to him as the ultimate good. But in this instance, God wants to clearly communicate to this infant church just how much he hates sin, how ugly and dreadful our sin is. Just how much it defames his holy name. Just how destructive it is to a community of people. How unloving it is for the God who is love. How unloving it is. And I think we could use the word also how satanic it is. How it's not of the kingdom of God, but is of the kingdom of Satan. Whenever lying is found, Satan and his influence is found. So lying in this manner to appear as someone who you are actually are not, to slightly embellish stories, to make yourself look like either maybe the victim or look like the hero, all of the time, I think it happens for two connected reasons. If you're willing to do that in your life, you are not comfortable with who you are. I want you to hear me, if you've been like sleeping, Right? If a raspy voice has put you to sleep or something, like just zone in here. If you are not comfortable with who you are, it drives you to do this. If you are not comfortable with your weaknesses, if you are not comfortable with your faults, and since you don't know what to do with them and you're afraid that they might get exposed, you yourself try to redeem yourself. You try to essentially save yourself by telling stories about yourself and things that have happened to you and things you did 
with an embellishment that glosses over the truth of potentially your failures, of your weaknesses, so others can see you as somebody that you are not. And again, just like wearing that crown at the Balsam Marathon while you didn't actually participate, that wasn't really who she was, right? It's exhausting work. It takes memorizing those stories and this new truth that you better be consistent in telling and doing so lest somebody find you out. It's not freedom, friends. It's slavery. It's being enslaved to lies and being enslaved to propping up an image of somebody whom you aren't. And it's deeply connected to point number two here. The second reason why this happens and why we end up doing this in our life is because you don't truly know the grace of Jesus Christ. Because grace means forgiveness. When it says Jesus died for your sins, when it says that he's going to, he's going to forgive you 77 times 7, when it says that in your weaknesses he is strong, we are guided to confess our sins, embrace our weaknesses because of who Jesus is, knowing he's going to forgive me, He's going to show up my weaknesses to bring about the deeply formed life that I embrace as his image bearer. If you truly knew the grace of Christ, you wouldn't be afraid of being known as a sinner. Because when I'm known as a sinner, you know what that means, friends? It only means Jesus will be known as my Savior. Do you understand this? Don't be afraid of that reality because the glory of Christ will show up in your life as soon as you embrace it. I will gladly then confess my sins if it means Christ becomes the hero of my own story. I will gladly confess my sins if it means that Jesus Christ will become the hero of my own story. I will gladly confess my weaknesses if it means Christ becomes the strength of my own story. Propping up lies like Ananias and Sapphira is trying to find godliness on your own way, in your own strength, in your own works, salvation through your own doing, and not through the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 12 says, that we got to run the race that is set out before us. we got to cast off all sins aside that burden and entangle us. As we go on the back end of our sermon here, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the gospel here, right, and consider what theologians have called the incarnation and what it teaches us about God in relationship to God and truthfulness. Listen to these words in John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. They saw his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The Word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Look at the lengths, friends, that God has communicated truth to us. He didn't do so as some person distant and far away. He literally became skin and bones, entered into human history. He willingly did so. And he experienced all the things we experienced. He experienced all the betrayal that we experienced, all the grief, all the loss, all the temptation, all the joys, all the struggle that we experienced willingly. So when he says, come and follow me as our high priest, he says, I know what you're going through. 
I understand. We have reason to cast our trust on a God who is willing to leave heaven and stoop himself down to such a lowly existence as ours. And this communicates to us the need as a church community for tangible, relational connection with one another if we are to build a culture of trust. It's been shown in our lives that walking through something very challenging or difficult or something very ecstatic or joyful with others, it creates a deep connection between them, a shared experience that brings them together. It's what bridges the gap between a stranger and the beginnings of a friendship. And this is what Jesus did when he became flesh. And if he did... Um, If he is the God who knows all things and he still took on your sins and died for you and he offers his love and his grace to you and the one in whom we are all one in, one baptism, one faith, we are all in the body of Christ. He is the very glue through his spirit who draws us together. The foundations of an honest and trusting community is built on the gospel as we deepen our relationships with one another, Jesus being the supreme example of this. So what I'm trying to say, friends, to begin walking this out, I think the first step to walk this out is this. If we as a church do not intentionally cultivate deep relationships amongst each other, I mean deep relationships, sharing meals together, sharing life together, going to each other's kids' you know, games or swim meets or whatever, like, living actual life together and cultivating that. Just as Jesus became one of us, we join each other's lives, right? As if we are part of each other's family. We simply won't trust each other because we won't know each other. I want us to set out on that kind of work in this church, that the gospel may be made manifest amongst us. And so Emmanuel, I'm going to call it the worship team at this point. We always close our services on opportunity for ministry. I said a lot of things this morning. I think there's some opportunities to be ministered to this morning for God to minister to you, for you to respond to him this morning. We're going to have some people available for prayer up here in the front or just grab somebody next to you and ask for prayer. Um, If you're hearing this and you're like, yes, I've been, a lot of my life has been lived in a lie. This is the morning to just confess that. And church, if somebody confesses that to you this morning, open up your arms of grace. There's no judgment because it's paid for on the cross, right? It's okay. Confess, take off this burden of sin and place it on Christ and let him pay for it and stop trying to pay for your own sins by glossing over it. If somebody in this room is just anxious for, a, for the spirit to just fill them and just have a, a deeper formed life in the likeness of Christ, that they just know that there is just blockages and barriers and walls in their own life that just seem to always just resort back to thinking about themselves before others and thinking about their own image, sometimes even at the cost of those around us. I pray that freedom can be found in this room this morning. 
Freedom from self, freedom from trying to prop those things up and just to discover the freedom of the forgiveness of sin, the freedom of the gospel all over again. Maybe there's, there's uh, people in this room that need to be healed this morning who need spiritual or even physical healing and need to be prayed for this morning. Whatever it might be, um, I ask that uh, you be willing to respond this morning. Jesus, I wanna thank you for all who are in this room. We thank you for the truths of the gospel. Lord, may you be the hero of our story and not ourselves, Lord. Would you fill our imagination with the, with the wonders and glory of the gospel or the, with the wonders and glory of who you are that we just may be so hungry for you to be the light that is shining in our own story, Lord, before our own light. Lord, I pray that you would do a work this morning. We ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, into this room now and work amongst us, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.